Today, you'll be hearing part one of a two-part episode. Part two will be released tomorrow. Be sure to subscribe to get the notification on your device when the episode goes live. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, an internal medicine physician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We've been having this COVID-19 mini-series, and the focus of the discussion has till now has been specific specialties where COVID-19 has affected those particular areas. But today, we are going to deal with the role of general internist in management of COVID-19. Regardless of how COVID presents, general internists are always drawn into taking care of these patients. So I am joined today in the podcast by Dr. Ryan Hurt, who is a professor of medicine and is the practice chair managing over 100 physicians at the Division of General Internal Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Rochester. And he's at the hem of this activity. And we are joined by Dr. Ravindra Ganesh, who is also a consultant in medicine, an instructor in medicine, actively involved in management of the logistics and management of the planning behind what we are going to discuss today. And Dr. Nadir Bunya, who is a senior associate uh, consultant in um, general internal medicine, who is actively involved in a whole range of activities which involves the management of COVID-19 patients. What these three individuals have done is nothing short of magic. In a very, very short time, they have been able to construct what is called the general internal medicine COVID frontline care team also called the CFCT. Thank you for joining us, Ryan, Nadir, and Ravi. Dr. Hurt, you're the practice chair, and you have a huge role of 100 patients. Before COVID happened, you were taking care of a huge division anyway with all the things which goes with managing these patients. How did your practice change with COVID-19? Thanks, Ahmed. I think you know we, we have 100 physicians in our division. We also have a large number of allied health, including nursing staff as well. And so our practice changed dramatically with COVID-19. You know, before COVID, pre-COVID, you know, we had a traditional group of physicians that do a number of practices, including hospital services, residency clinic, general consultative internal medicine. And we have specialty areas too, like breast clinic, um, and integrated medicine and women's health here at Mayo Clinic that we as general internist staff, so we have some specialty, but our, our world did change with COVID. Clearly, patients being seen in the out, primary, the outpatient practice with COVID-19 about four or five weeks ago was dramatically changed with uh, the rapid spread of COVID-19 throughout our communities. And so clearly we had to pivot and shift in a number of areas. The times of pa pandemic or emergency, I think the true value of the general internist really becomes clear. And I've, I'm very proud of the fact that our general internists were able to pivot and go into different types of practices and help out. We're, we're generalists. We're able to do hospital practice very easily. We're able to see all kinds of ambulatory patients. And I think the one area that we're talking about today is how can the general internist help with these COVID patients? And we take care of complex patients. And so we initially met and devised a, a plan for us partnering with our nursing team to take care of these patients. So 
when, when COVID-19 patients were positive, we were going to be the ones to risk stratify them, use a lot of our internal medicine skills, talk to the patients, connect with them, and then figure out, you know, when and if they needed to be seen urgently. So we're acting really as a program to help with the po positive patients. That's great. So looks like, as you mentioned, general internal medicine, because of a myriad of roles and skills, uh, we are the connectors. We connect with the specialists, we connect with other groups, and we are also connecting with the supply chain. But since COVID-19, how have your health providers, care providers been asked to fill in the different roles, which, which you just mentioned at a very short notice, we've been asked to fill up several roles in the hospital, in the clinic, and how, how have you been able to do that as a busy practice chair of a, of a large division? So clearly as our practice has, you know, our, we had decreased numbers in the outpatient practice and we had a number of really skilled uh, individuals as general internists that had abilities to, for instance, as we know the COVID-19 affects patients and hospitalizes patients, including putting a large segment of our population potentially at risk for ICU care, we are able to offload much of the hospital, you know, so taking internists that do some hospital work, but now going over there, filling in, taking over a lot of the hospital internal medicine uh, traditional teams so they could be reallocated to COVID special units. We easily did that. We also, uh, as you'll hear about the COVID frontline care team uh, more in a few minutes, we're able to form a whole new program uh, about uh, taking care of these patients using connected care, using telehealth, and using our skills as general internists to risk stratify. We're also involved in tracing. So with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's clear we're going to have to have testing and tracing moving forward for the next year until we have a, a viable vaccine. We're going to have to continue to use our skills to trace and track patients that have infection. And so we had a number of internists that helped occupational medicine uh, perform those tasks. We also, our team, our operation staff and our nursing staff also opened a testing center and we staff that with our nurse practitioners. And so they're the ones that when uh, uh, the screening uh, patients come in and they get screened positive and need the test, they're ordering the tests uh, and following up on those. And if they're positive, they come to the frontline team, which Nadir and Ravi will talk about. The final one was obviously the, the team that we're going to focus on, and we were tasked with partnering with ID, figuring out how we could basically develop a whole new treatment uh, program, which we're very proud of, uh, to take care of the positive patients, ensuring that they receive excellent medical care and have almost like a safety net that, you know, we're going to take care of you, we're going to follow you very carefully. We kind of model this, I'm involved in home nutrition, and so we take care of patients at home for home nutrition. We have nursing staff call them at regular intervals, check in on them. And so using telehealth and connected care, we are able to, Drs. Ganesh and Bouyan really were the driving force behind with nursing developing this new type of uh, care platform. So the traditional thought process was that this is an infection, so infectious disease got to be involved initially but looks like what you said was very soon, uh, because of the number of cases, the infectious disease services got really overwhelmed and came to you to kind of help out and manage and do the, all the groundwork. Yeah, those, those are good points. So infectious disease, clearly we needed them at higher levels. 
helping with big planning, but also they were heavily involved in the hospital. But I also say, you know, general internists, we have a lot of training in epidemiology. We have training in some in infectious disease. We also manage complex care patients. And I think ID, if you really ask them, will say, look, we gave you a lot of guidance early on, but I'll give credit to Drs. Bouillon and, and Ganesh in that, because they were initially calling these patients, but we saw very quickly that involving our complex care nursing team, having our nursing team educate patients on the importance of you know, isolation, the importance of quarantine. Some of these things we incorporated and we came up with, I think, in addition to what ID gave us initially for the guidance. Clearly, we had to help them offload a lot of this and help redeploy them as well as hospital internal medicine to other areas. That's and, great. So uh, this know. model has um, tough precedence, you know, because in diseases that affect wide spots of the community like HIV and Hep C, oftentimes primary care medicine does help a lot with this. So it's not um, unprecedented for us to be working with infectious disease in this capacity. Agreed. The techniques that you that you all mentioning is not very different from the army of redeploying one team working on something in peacetime, and when when it's a war time, they kind of redeploy in some other location. Everybody's doing different. So our hospital services, the numbers were initially low. So what you mentioned is we redeployed them uh, in doing something else. We are now going to go and focus a lot on uh, telemedicine, which seemed to be the magic or the technology which got into use. But there is more to the technology. There is a life behind the telemedicine and how you connect with the patient. So my next question is for Nadir. How has telemedicine enhanced the management of care of these patients with COVID-19? And do you believe that this is the best way or we could do something else? if you are faced with similar situations later on? Thanks, Amit. I think that's a great and important question. And when you look at the literature about these patients that are COVID positive, about 80% of them have mild symptoms or they're asymptomatic. And I think this is an excellent population to be managed by telemedicine because essentially a lot of it is outpatient. These patients present with upper respiratory tract infection symptoms when they're mild. And we're all very familiar with that as general internists. They're going to have fever, they're going to have cough, they're going to have sore throats, myalgias, fatigue, these kinds of things. And these can be managed as an outpatient, but they don't even need to be managed face-to-face. -face. You can listen to these symptoms and give guidance and counseling to these patients, conservative management. And there's a big risk of transmission to healthcare workers. And by doing this in a telemedicine fashion, we can protect our healthcare workforce um, as well as reaching out to these patients. And some of these patients are in remote areas. Some of them don't have the means to make it to an uh, outpatient facility or an inpatient facility. So we can increase our access to these people without leaving our office, uh, our workstations, without the patient having to leave their home. And I think that's a huge advantage to doing a telemedicine approach. The other issue is we're seeing hospital resources being stretched like we've never seen before. ERs are being overburdened. There are shortages on personal protective equipment for healthcare workers. There are shortages on ICU beds. There's patients that are going to be in PACU and pre-op that are ICU patients because those are the spaces that are available. So we have a responsibility to limit the people that go to the hospital um, the best that we can. And we can do that through telemedicine. Like Ryan was saying, internists have a broad set of skills. We understand the comorbidities that these patients have. We know their medications and drug interactions. 
So we can risk stratify them and find out who can stay at home and who needs to be seen in person, whether that's at a clinic site or in the emergency room. And I think that's very useful because a lot of people are gonna be anxious about this and when they know that they test positive, any slight change in their symptoms might prompt them to go to the emergency room. And now that's more PPE being used. There's more possibilities of transmission to EMT, ER staff, intake staff, ER physicians. But if we can keep those people at home by listening to their symptoms, risk stratifying them, we are decreasing the risk for our healthcare workers, which are crucial at this time. Um, and the other thing I think is important to talk about is we are going to talk to some people that need to go to the emergency room. And we're going to be able to tell them that, that you need to go. But not only are we going to be able to tell them that, we're going to be able to let them know that they should call EMS and tell EMS that they're COVID positive so that the EMS, our first responders, can be prepared with the right equipment when they're coming to see this patient. And then we're also able to reach out to our colleagues in the emergency rooms and let them know this is the patient's information. They're COVID positive. These are their symptoms. This is why I'm sending them to the emergency room. So we're really streamlining that process so they know who's coming, they know why they're coming, and they know that they're COVID positive. And that, I think, is extremely important and useful in this chaotic time that we're living in. The other thing that we're going to encounter are people that we're concerned about, but maybe they don't need to go to the ER just yet. And we've been able to use remote patient monitoring, which is another branch of telemedicine, for the people that we're really concerned about. And those may be people that are either high risk or we're concerned about their symptoms. And remote patient monitoring is simply providing them with equipment that measure vital signs that are transmitted uh, to a team that's checking on them. So it's another layer of surveillance without increasing risk to healthcare workers. And Ryan mentioned you know, contact tracing public health. And I think that's an important thing to mention because who's gonna notice the clusters first? It's gonna be the people that are doing telemedicine and finding out not only are you, are, you know, not only are you positive, but the people in your household are also positive. Oh, you're a healthcare worker. Oh, this is a nursing home. So we're able to identify hotspots, so to speak, and we can relay that information to our colleagues in the Department of Public Health that, hey, we're concerned about this specific area and maybe a team needs to be deployed so we can contain that area. And I think the last thing I wanna say on this topic is, you know, there's a lot of credible and not credible information out there and we're still learning about this disease. And this is an avenue for direct contact with the patient. Even with the uncertainty, we can be a credible source of information to allay their fears um, and tell them which information we believe to be correct and which information we believe to be incorrect. And that can be very reassuring to the patients, but also the physicians that people are being educated about the disease. Thank you, Nadi. Those are, those are excellent points you made. I just wanted to know what kind of tele objects do these uh, patients have? Are, are you giving them iPads or they're speaking to you on their phone? You mentioned of some of them are in remote areas. So that's my first question as to how you're working with the tele part with them. And number two, how often is this monitoring going on? Is it a nurse physician extender, like a nurse calling the patient? Is it on a daily basis? Or are you calling based on the, uh, the evaluation of the vital signs, uh, which you mentioned the, of the monitoring which is going on in this in few of these patients? So what kind of instruments are you using? Well, that's uh, another great uh, great question, Amit. And I, you know, we've been working with our Department of Connected Care in this avenue. And you know, for the people that we're really concerned about, that we deem high risk based on their medical history, their symptoms, we're enrolling them in what we call complex care. And that is 
Bluetooth devices that's FedExed overnight to their houses that have blood pressure monitors, pulse oximeters, so we get heart rate and oxygen levels. And there's a, they're also provided a tablet so that if a video visit needs to be performed, that can be done and they can enter information about their symptoms uh, into this tablet. And it, uh, the question of who's monitoring this, it's actually a team of nurses that work for that department here at Mayo that are getting that data. Um, and they will call the patient prompted based on vital sign alerts and they have criteria set for that. If it's not somebody that they wanna send to the emergency room, they will escalate that to the physician team, let them know which vital signs are abnormal, what symptoms they have and where should we go from here. They do have regular intervals regardless of their vital signs that they do contact these patients based on their risk status to check in with them. How are you doing? What are your symptoms like? Are they better? Are they worse? Are they the same? So they can use the symptoms uh, to triage these patients as well. Because as you know, Amit, some people may have normal vital signs, but still be heading in the wrong direction. And the symptoms are going to be the key there. Um, there is a lower tech version of that that is used through a smartphone application called the Interactive Care Plan. Those people are provided a thermometer and a pulse oximeter, and they're going to manually enter the data from those devices plus their symptoms. And those are people that we may be concerned about, but we're not you know, classifying them as high risk. What are the top five kind of questions or concerns that these patients have? What kind of questions are they asking? So the first thing that we do when we reach out to these patients is we let them know who we are and why we're calling. And we let them know that we're calling because they're positive. And we give a, a pause there because they're gonna have some reactions. And we let them know that now we're gonna walk you through you know, our process of how we're gonna take care of you. So we ask them the first is about their symptoms because shortness of breath is a symptom that we're the most concerned about because we know it's the viral pneumonias that are hospitalizing patients. So we ask about that and then we ask about what other symptoms they might have. Um, and then once we, once we get that information, we ask questions about their medical history. You know, are you a smoker? Do you have COPD? Do you have heart failure? Do you have diabetes? Are you immunocompromised? Because all of those questions will help us risk stratify them. And then as part of the contact tracing and public health part of it, we want to know, you know, where they work. Are you a healthcare worker? Because they may have had contact. Are you working at a, you know, skilled nursing facility? Are you working at another place that has a lot of contact with other people? Does any of your family members meet that criteria? Are they healthcare workers? Who else is in the household with you? Do you have young children? Do you have elderly parents? Is anybody in the household immunocompromised? So these are the kinds of questions that we're asking these patients so we can get a sense, not just them, but all the people that are in their immediate lives that may be affected by this. What kind of questions do they ask you if you call them on day two or day three or day 10 of the illnesses? Is it uh, how they're doing? Are, are they concerned about the treatment? Are they concerned about, you mentioned that some of these kind of a myths and fallacies and whatever is going on in the press, they might be asking you about it. So what are the things that they usually ask, the top five, six questions? Right, so some of the questions they're asking, you know, how long do I need to be under quarantine? Are my family members in the household going to be okay? You know, some people have asked, am I going to die? Right, so that is a very legitimate concern. Some of these people are pregnant, so they're asking about that. And you know, regard to what's going on in the media, you know, there's a lot of information about potential treatment. So some people are asking about that. Should I get prescribed that? Can you prescribe me this? You know, I've been sick for X amount of days. Why am I not better yet? Or I want to donate 
my plasma for treatment after I get better? How do I do that? Right. So these are the kinds of questions uh, they're asking. And sometimes, you know, with this situation being so chaotic, they get calls from multiple people and they get some conflicting information. So some of their questions are, well, whose information should I follow? And we work with them through those. That's outstanding. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the kind of thing which uh, our viewers would like to know, and they're already going through it. Uh, my next question is to Ravi. With all the telemedicine going on, and Ravi, I, I see that you are instrumental in the COVID frontline care team. We talked about several positives, which Nadir talked about several positives. What are the downside of telemedicine uh, that you are seeing from the frontline? Thanks, um, Amit. Um, so the downsides of telemedicine, they're becoming less as our um, country becomes more technologically advanced, but something still remain missing from the traditional physical encounter. We can perform a good physical exam. Uh, there's been a lot of work that's been done to find physical exam signs that you can replicate on telemedicine, including one that we both like called the Rossbor, where we can check how dyspneic somebody is in a video visit. Still, I can't hear a murmur, so there's a lot of telemedicine visits that end in us having to send them in to get an in-person evaluation. Sometimes it's very difficult with a language barrier. We work very closely with our interpreters, um, but it does get difficult when you're on a phone call and you have three people on the line, a lot of pauses. You miss that body language and that nonverbal communication that you'd have in a different situation. There, there are issues with practicing telemedicine across state lines. And this has been lifted to, the, to a large part in the current epidemic. But um, in our Mayo Clinic catchment area, we do have patients from Iowa, Wisconsin, South Dakota. So we have a lot of people who aren't necessarily in our area. Um, with respect to internet access and technology, Connected Care was very smart with the way they designed their tablets. The tablets are cellular enabled, so you don't need to have Wi-Fi to run them. So they work virtually everywhere except in really remote areas below the tower. So that's been pretty easy to use. Most of my older patients have been able to use it successfully. They've put a lot of backup, I guess, at the elbow support, if you will, for these patients. But we just still have patients who can't use it, patients who can't use the interactive care plan because they don't have a smartphone or reliable internet. And these are barriers to using telemedicine. They're developing the cardiology. I see a, every day I see a new device coming up for remote monitoring and QT monitoring, all kinds of things are there. So it is getting better. Clearly, it has to get better after COVID uh, because I think telehealth is now no longer just a, a fancy word which was there. We were using in a selected group of patients that this is going to be a part of our life. So I think some of the negatives can be moved around and turned around and it's a good thing to capture it and we have to see how to enhance telemedicine. I see a lot of videos on YouTube and a lot of uh, small clips on physical exam with telemedicine where you're using the patient's hands as, you, as if it's your hand. So there has to be some kind of guidance given to the patient on how to select the lighting because you've got to see the neck, you're going to see the JVD. They might be able to palpate their neck for you as you give the command and moving the neck around. You can see the sternocleidomastoid. So the lighting and broadband, all these things, I think probably we'll, have, we'll be getting more uh, kind of a guidance from 
AAMC or our own uh, ABIM and others, how we should do it. And I know there are a couple of places which are doing fellowships in tele telemedicine, uh, which comes in mind. Jefferson University comes in mind. Hopefully, after this, we'll have much more guidance on how do we do physical exam and hear lung sounds, heart sounds remotely with, with all the instruments which we have. But I, I'm, I'm going to go back to Nadir. These patients whom you see, they're very anxious. I mean, once, once you hear you got COVID, um, anxiety takes care. And how are you able to uh, manage the anxiety? Even when they're coming to the clinic without COVID, it, it, is, it is quite an art which we have in general medicine. That's part of our training, and that's what we are good at. But are you able to translate some of those same skills over telemedicine to these patients? Yeah, that's another important uh, question, Amit. And I'm going to allude to what Ravi was saying earlier is that, you know, there's cultural barriers that are more difficult to overcome because of the lack of body language. You can't hold a patient's hand when you're giving them difficult news. So that definitely presents some challenges. And the, the anxiety is legitimate. The fear is legitimate. I mean, turn on the televised news at any point in the day and there's numbers of deaths and infected. So these people are you know, understandably worried about their diagnosis. And I think some of the strategies that you would use in an office visit still translate here. And I think the biggest one is to listen. And you've seen the studies on how often a physician interrupts a patient when they start talking. Within the first few seconds is the number that's often quoted. We need to be silent after we let them know that they're positive and listen to their concerns without interrupting them and we also have to acknowledge their concerns as legitimate, as real, and that we let them know that this is not just a courtesy call to let you know that you're positive. This is the start of our plan to take care of you. We are here now and we're taking care of you even though we're not there in person. So we have to let them know that to reassure them and give them anticipatory guidance. What should they do should their symptoms or situation change so they know what to do once you get off the phone. Like I mentioned shortness of breath earlier, and I tell a lot of these people that I call, should you develop shortness of breath? Should you develop chest pain, chest pressure? This is a reason to seek urgent care in an emergency room. And they understand that. And I make them repeat it to me. So we're on the same page there. And then I think another thing we have to do is since we are initiating care with this patient, we have to provide a mechanism for them to reach out to us after that initial phone call ends within reason, right? And whether that's a portal message through an electronic health record or a phone number to our team so that they can contact us during work hours, after work hours, if they have a question about their symptoms, you know, and we provide both of those services to the patients that we're reaching out to you know, I think that's important because even though you're not there in person, they know that you're taking care of them. They can reach you if things change, but also you're going to continue to contact them. We let them know, we think you're low risk. We think you're high risk and here's why. And because you're high risk or because you're low risk, on these days, we're going to reach out to you to see how you're doing, if you're improving. And a lot of people are reassured when they hear that because they know that somebody is going to reach out to them. And I think a great thing that Ravi initiated was what happens if we can't reach these patients after we've contacted them and told them we're going to follow them and then they're suddenly not picking up the phone? Well, for our high-risk patients or the patients that we're concerned about, 
we've devised plans to, to say, who should we contact the police department to do a welfare check on? Because we can't get through with them. They were high risk. Maybe they have heart failure with an ejection fraction less than 30%, and now we can't get through to them. You know, that might be somebody that you send, you know, somebody in person to their household to just make sure that they're doing okay. And we've had experiences with that that turned it out, uh, that turned out positive. So, yeah, that's, that's how we do it. I expect that uh, with the technology improving, you could still have a very good sense of not only the verbal communication which we are doing, but also the non-verbal skills and pick up. Yes, if there's a if there's a cultural difference and the patient doesn't speak English, I think that's where again general internists are really good at picking up the body language from this uh, patients because we are at the front line of taking care of patients of all you know from all cultures. So. That's something to keep in mind and that's something to study and I'm sure your group is studying on all the interactions and maybe recording it to understand what we did well, what lessons we learned and what we're going to improve. But here, uh, my next question is to Ravi and, and you've been working day and night along with uh, Ryan and Nadir and you're instrumental in setting up the Mayo Clinic Rochester telemedicine management of COVID-19. Can you tell us uh, some of the hardest parts of setting up a telemedicine practice. We're talking about just going to a patient and seeing them, doing your, doing your eight to five job, to suddenly now you have to manage systems. So can you explain what you did and what are the lessons you learned in the process? This was not something I had any experience with um, beforehand. Um, I'm much more comfortable seeing a patient in real life what we had to do was um, quickly learn what we were up against. And it's difficult because COVID is brand new. We have three months of data on this thing and the data rapidly evolves. So having the knowledge that we, we're gonna change what we do and creating a process that's nimble was one of the first things we had to do. We had a lot of stakeholders in this process and we had to, we had to talk to them all. So we had talked to the folks from ID who were the initial guidance on how to do this. We had to talk to the folks from occupational health to ask, you know, how do you want us to deal with employees who are positive? Because healthcare employees have a big footprint. We had to talk to the folks from the public health department and we had to interface with the connected care team. I think that our abilities as general internists who are used to managing uh, complicated patients remotely as Dr. Hertz Commental Nutrition Program does, really played in here because we got to use our nurses as physician extenders. And honestly, without them, we wouldn't have been able to reach the amount of patients that we did. We also have a really great group of schedulers who kept us honest and kept things on the schedule so that things wouldn't fall off. Because if you can imagine, right now we're at 300 plus patients and trying to keep track of all of them is, is difficult. Um, the organization of it was also challenging. Um, thankfully, we had some very smart um, nurse leaders who were able to put together epic lists that allowed us to keep track of patients. We had um, very good administrators who were able to put us in touch with the right people to get resources and to organize what right now is about 16 physicians and about 30 nurses to make everything work in a seamless manner. As time went on and we began to start to get more patients in as a quaternary care center that has urgent cases, we had to start interfacing with um, the surgeons um, who were bringing these patients in just to make sure that they were safe to come to our facility. And 
that took interfacing with a whole other team and it made the logistics a little bit more challenging, but we all got together and we worked it out. One of the things that's been a little difficult about this is we're doing all these meetings via phone or Zoom, and that's been a whole new skill set. It's a little bit more difficult to do that when you're not quite sure who all is in the room, what they're saying, what they're doing. Um, so that's been a little bit of a challenge. But I think that now, um, having put the system in place, while we are having new cogs added every day, and at the start of this, we're thinking about how many groups we're involved with now, and it's about 14 or 15. I think that because the core has been developed and we, we planned for expansion, I think it's being a little easier at this point in time. Um, thank you for mentioning about the Zoom and the different teams. As a leader of the team, do you end the meeting by assigning responsibility to each team? Do you go around all the 16 saying, this is your job for the day? Or there are point people who are assigned tasks. It's very easy to do it when you're face to face and you're talking. And when you have to multiply that in a Zoom, uh, how do you assign tasks and what are the kinds of parameters you're following saying that the work is being done? So that's, that's something I'm still learning. Um, I'm trying to model the folks who I see being highly effective with that. Uh, one of the strategies that I really like is when people do a quick summary of the action points. I'm trying to do that and say, hey, these are the four action points. So these are the things we're going to do um, and assign who's going to work on what part of it. And having worked together for about four weeks now, we, we know who's really good at what. And Nadir is our excellent educator, Dr. Bioli, who's not on the call, is very good at systems because he's an engineer. So we're, we're tapping into what people are good at and assigning the work appropriately. So Dr. Hurt, you're already a practice chair of a huge number of uh, physicians. So you're used to managing huge numbers. And then you are also the director of the home nutrition. So you led a huge team and you know the logistics of that. What aspects of those skills that you had already pre-COVID you've acquired helped you? And what were the new skills which you found that you had to absolutely bring in um, on, the, on the run? Yeah, so I, I think uh, to answer that, I, you know, we have a very diverse division here in general internal medicine. And so as the vice chair of practice, my job is to manage the, the practice aspects of, of the division. I think I had a lot of experience in, in home parental and nutrition working with multidisciplinary teams. So I think I quickly identified here that I wanted Dr. Ganesh and Buyan because I recognize their skill and leadership potential to, to lead this team. It's very hard, though, as a, somebody in a, in a leadership position like this. I, I know that I, I could not, like I did for home nutrition, get in there and, and create the team myself and do everything. So I think as a leader, you have to recognize that you need to delegate and you have to have trust in the people you delegate. And so I think... I knew probably from the get-go who I wanted to delegate these tasks to based on the skill set that I knew that they had. But the other thing we recognized, like Dr. Ganesh identified, is we really had an opportunity to use our skills in our division uh, using our nursing staff who have done a lot of this uh, telemedicine sort of care for complex nutrition patients and partnering them with the physician staff uh, to be able to effectively create this program. And so I think for me, that's, that was probably the easy part because I already had those skills. 
think the unpredictability of the COVID as Nadir and both Robbie alluded to is, was the challenge here. Home TPN is different than monitoring patients uh, with COVID-19. So learning and keeping up to date on COVID is something very important for all general internists and all physicians. And I think our group, uh, Nadir has led that. Uh, he's giving a great grand rounds tomorrow on this topic. I think it, it's been fascinating and I've been very proud of how we have really kept up to date on COVID like no other group that I know of, you know, outside infectious disease. And, and so I'm very proud of that. And I think that's the, been the biggest challenge was making sure we are knowledgeable about COVID so we can pass along that information and confidence both to our patients as well as our work staff. We've been talking about the many ways that general medicine are responding to the COVID-19 infection. Uh, thank you for your time, Ryan, Ravi, and Nadir. I learned a lot uh, today about not only the management, about the front line as well, the use of telemedicine, the use of social media, and following the trends. And as general internal medicine physicians, this has really given us a shot in the arm as a specialty to work and think about all our efforts and how we coordinated and showed leadership will be really remembered. But I, my heart goes out to the families, um, the lot of general internal medicine doctors who have lost the battle, uh, taking care of the patients, not only in the US, uh, but in NHS, in National Health Service, just heard 24 doctors have lost their life. So uh, this, is, this is a very hard time for all of us. Hopefully we'll never lose sight of what's going on. We'll capture and learn from this experience. And hopefully we'll never get to have this happen again. But if it happens ever, I'm sure, sure, this, this, all the information that you have shared and I'm sure you're going to update us um, about newer things that you learn. So uh, thank you for, for your time, Ryan, Ravi, and Nadir. We'll continue to bring you the updates on this situation as events unfold. If you've enjoyed the Mayo Clinic Talk podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you next week. Don't forget to check out the second part of this episode tomorrow. If you're interested in claiming credit, visit ce.mayo.edu slash COVID-19 podcast.